This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Thanks a lot for sitting through this tremendous heat. By the summer of 1983, Joe McGinnis's book, Fatal Vision, was about to hit bookstores across the country. And now, a camera crew is focusing on the book's subject, Jeffrey McDonald. He's sitting in the visiting room at Bastrop Federal Correctional Institution in Texas. All right, as you wish. Go right ahead. Across from Jeff sits Mike Wallace, host of CBS's widely watched 60 Minutes. McDonald intends to file a motion for a new trial based on new evidence he says will corroborate his story that the murders were committed by the four intruders. Jeff is here to talk about the new evidence that would prove his innocence. And Wallace was interested in Jeff's account of the night of the murders. So you got up and went to... I tried to get off the couch and that's where I was assaulted, apparently received some wounds, including stab wounds and several blows to the head. To Jeff, it must have seemed as if he finally caught a break. That is, until Wallace held up a copy of Fatal Vision, and the real reason for his visit became apparent. Joe McGinnis says that Jeff McDonald he came to know is a consummate actor, and that he plays his part so well that he can lie more persuasively than some other people can tell the truth. Even government prosecutors couldn't come up with a motive or an explanation of how a man like McDonald could have committed so brutal a crime. But Joe McGinnis thinks he's found the key, new evidence he discovered after the trial. Evidence he has never discussed with McDonald. Uh-oh. And that's how Jeffrey found out about it. Mr. Joe McGinnis is the author of a best-selling book, which is the inside story of how Nixon was really elected. The book has caused a, a great deal of comment, Jake. It is the fruit of a great deception. How you came to have all the access you did. One cannot suppose that competent people would have confided to Mr. McGinnis if they had known that he intended to write such a book as he has written. The only area in which dishonesty creeps in is if the reporter is to pretend to be completely objective. I've never seen a book done from inside the defense in a major criminal trial. Most Americans do not care how a story was got, just so long as it was got. The title search is finally over. The book will be called Fatal Vision. Fatal Vision. Fatal Vision. I'm Mark Smerling, and this is Morally Indefensible. Chapter 5. Friends Become Enemies. There's no Jeffrey McDonald beats at most newspapers. You know, nobody has the Jeffrey McDonald beat. This is longtime journalist Bob Keeler. While he's technically right, if any journalist ever had an unofficial Jeffrey McDonald beat, it was Bob. Back in the 70s, Bob was writing his own book about the case. You know, I had a little red box where I kept the manuscript. So I was getting there little, little by little, and then along comes Joe McGinnis, who runs into Jeffrey in California and agrees to live with the defense during the trial. 
And Joe McGinnis, by that time, had made a big name for himself, covering, uh, you know, the selling of the president, the Nixon book. Boom! You know, that was it. My opportunity to do a book was basically over at that point. Keeler may have stopped writing his book, but he was still reporting on the case. He knew that Jeff and Joe had been close. So after reading Fatal Vision, Keeler wanted to talk to Jeff. I visited him at the Bastrop Federal Correctional Institute in Texas. So this is a magazine piece I wrote. The headline is Convict and Writer, Two Men, Three Murders, and a Book. I'm pretty sure, just judging by the length of the quotes in the piece, that I probably used a tape recorder for that interview. He did. And we've got those tapes. Joe's a coward. You know, he hasn't written a letter since Mike Wallace arrived. The day before Mike Wallace got here, I got a letter from him, normal, talking about the Yankees. You know, it was the ultimate betrayal in his reckoning that, uh, that Joe McGinnis had done this to him. Jeffrey now knew that the book he was expecting from Joe, i.e. Jeffrey the Tortured Innocent, was not the book that Joe was delivering. Obviously now, you're just fearful of how much it's gonna hurt, I assume. Mm-hmm. I was trying to get from him what his reaction to Joe's book was. I can't give you a complete opinion, because I haven't read the book yet. Yeah, right. Because I, I entrusted my life to him, and right. apparently it's been pretty well violated. He should have figured this out. You know, if you're playing football, you, and he was a football player, you study the team you're about to play, you make some judgments about what they're going to do to you. Why didn't you read the books be- his previous books before? Because I thought that my perception of Joe was accurate. You know, the selling of the president, the Nixon book, was another example of his modus operandi. Uh, he didn't understand that Joe McGinnis had this M.O. of worming his way into the confidence of somebody and then turning around and screwing him. We still had this... I guess hope more than anything that uh, we hadn't been incorrect on Joe and that he did have integrity and that he was going to write a good book. He had never. That was at that point, I mean, aside from getting a new trial, that became your only hope of some kind of vindication. Exactly. Something that had perplexed Keeler while reading Fatal Vision was how many of the book's most damning revelations seemed to come from Jeffrey McDonald himself. They were often in quotes. It turns out these were pulled directly from the tapes Jeff had sent to Joe from prison. So you just sort of sit down and you... Well, making the tapes, they were very hard to do. Sometimes I would put them off for weeks at end until he was really harassing me to get them. Yeah. I would sit down uh, for a long evening and make a couple hours worth of tapes. I I found it emotionally very trying. So then I made what, in retrospect, may have been the wrong decision. For Jeff, the wrong decision was trusting Joe and opening up in the tapes he sent him. Getting Jeff to get personal in the tapes had required a lot of coaxing. Don't be bashful. I am the only one who hears these tapes. Hang as loose as you can. You're talking to me, and only me. Well, that turned out not to be true. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. 
basically this book would not have been possible without your sort of serving yourself up to him. There's an awful lot of sections that just say the voice of Jeffrey McDonald. It's just a verbatim transcript of your tape. It's sprinkled throughout the book, you know. Sitting across a metal table from Jeff in a small cement block room at Bastrop, Keeler pulls out his own well-thumbed-through copy of Fatal Vision. One thing is that in the tapes, you know... Testing, testing. This is Jeff to Joe. The tapes say an awful lot about your sex life, about women you dated and women you slept with. Tape two, side one for Joe. I mean, the cumulative effect of this over the period of the whole book. is sleazy. Yeah. These are recreated excerpts of those tapes that Jeff sent to Joe. I did tend to sleep around. There's no question. I've never denied that, and I'm not denying that now. I know this sounds like a defendant talking. It never meant anything to me. Women were always easy for me. I had a million opportunities in medical school, believe me. Every nurse was reasonably available to medical students. Gloria was a good-looking tall brunette. She was just available. She made the first move. I did tend, when I was in Texas, to find an airline stewardess, take her to a party, and better that night. Took her for a drink. She said, let's go back to your room. So I went back, and I bawled her. She was really a screwed-up bitch, there's no denying that. Fun person when she had her head on straight, which was infrequently. Like three or four women's name mentioned a period of a couple of pages in the book. This one is shuttling out, and that one's shuttling in, and this one's shuttling in. The cumulative effect is to make it, you know, it's a bit, sort of a sleazy overall effect. I found being the hunter to be more exciting than to be pursued, but I never turned down a good looking woman who made a pass at me. Fatal Vision also revealed that after Jeff was charged with the murders of his family, and while he was confined to his barracks by the army, he was having sex with a woman in his quarters. Are those things in the book? Those things are in the book. Fine, what does that have to do with whether or not I committed a triple homicide? Yeah. You would want to... You, I mean, you, you would argue with, uh, that... Okay, It's maybe, not maybe, relevant. Yeah. It's not relevant. But it was relevant. Jeffrey McDonald and his supporters had always argued that Jeff couldn't have committed the murders because he was a loving husband and father. The revelations in Jeff's own words revealed him to be a serial cheater, with little regard for his wife. But even more perplexing to Keeler was why would Jeff tell a writer about any of this? But, I, but the question I mean, on why talk that frankly about that understand. part of your character the, on these tapes? I didn't want Joe spending two years thinking, gee, McDonald isn't telling me the whole story, okay? So I told him the whole story from my viewpoint, assuming he would then edit. Yeah. I didn't expect him to put quotes around my words. Yeah. That's, uh, that's cheap, that's cheap uh, paperback stuff. That isn't a, 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 good, a good writer. Well, this puts you in a very difficult, sort of strange situation, if you think about it for a second. If this book is a gigantic success, you'll get some money out of it. Yeah, it's really vulgar. Obviously, I hope the book doesn't sell a copy. I wish the book would burn. So this is a magazine piece I wrote. There was plenty of time these days for Jeffrey McDonald to think, three lifetimes worth. And he spends much of that time worrying about a book that could make him a lot of money and lose him a lot of friends. In the heat and crushing humidity of the long central Texas afternoons, he does his thinking in the recreation yard as he weeds and hoes and cuts the grass and straightens up the weights that he and other inmates use to keep their bodies strong. A few hours drive north of Manhattan on a pretty street in the college town of Williamstown, Joe McGinnis sits on the freshly painted back porch 
of his 19th century home and thinks about the book too. Uh, so yeah, that's when I visited Joe, now I recall, by reading this again, when I was working on his magazine piece. Uh, we got those tapes too. Okay, we left off with, okay. In the book, you talk about Jeffrey's self-destructive tendencies. This book really couldn't have been nearly as good a book as it is, were it not for the Jeffrey giving all this access. His contributions, I mean, the, the most damaging things in the book in terms of revelations about him as a person and about what happened that night come from him. He's yeah. the one who lets me in his apartment. And yeah. I would never have learned any of this stuff about him. What else did Joe learn? Well, Fatal Vision didn't just have sex. It had drugs, too. Okay. I've talked to people who were uh, involved with the prosecution at the time. Okay. I've talked to people who In Williamstown, Massachusetts, Joe McGinnis is sitting on his porch with Bob Keeler. Both journalists have become experts on the McDonald murders, but a lingering question has dogged them for years. In the book, we talk about this theory about Jeff, uh, a factor in his psychosis that led up to the killing. Why would Jeffrey McDonald murder his family? You have to reason backwards. Something caused him to do this on this particular night. This was the work of somebody who was in some kind of a psychotic rage. I see. I was operating under the assumption that his blood had been tested. It had been conclusively proven that, that the blood was free of any traces of dangerous drugs or narcotics. In episode three, we learned about Joe's first trip to California to visit Jeff in prison and how Joe had stayed in Jeff's condo. There, he found boxes of files related to Jeff's case. You just never know what you're going to find. You're yeah. going to find uh, meaningless stuff, and right next to it, you're going to find uh, the keys to the kingdom. The key to the kingdom that Joe found was in Jeff's own handwriting, notes he had written back in 1970. Jeff's lawyer had asked him to write down everything he remembered leading up to the murders, a timeline of events. And Joe had given those notes to Mike Wallace of 60 Minutes. According to the note, which I've seen, He's taken in his own handwriting, in notes prepared for his own attorneys, he goes into great detail about his consumption of a drug called Escatrol, which is no longer on the market. Escatrol had been a popular diet pill back in the 60s. It was voluntarily withdrawn because of dangerous side effects. Among the side effects of this drug are, when taken to excess by susceptible individuals, temporary psychosis often manifested as a rage reaction. The final triggering thing, according to Joe in the book, Joe's theory is that this rage was loosed by the Escatrol. Back at Bastrop Correctional Facility, Keeler confronted Jeff with Joe's theory. Oh, it's ludicrous. It's really ludicrous. Okay. That's totally unmedical, unphysiological, it's a guess by a writer lusting for a, you know, a greater plane. Totally hypothetical, based in no facts at all. Okay. Did Mike Wallace spend an awful lot of time on this with you? Yeah. How did he go about it? He felt as... Uh, Mike is hard to interpret. Mike Wallace was known for many things over the course of his 40-year career. Being hard to interpret was not one of them. McDonald first learned of McGinnis's conclusions when I talked with him in prison. I never stated that to anyone. I also wasn't taking Escatrol. It's in your own handwriting. 
We ate dinner together at 5.45 p.m. It is possible I had one diet pill at this time. Mike, there's no question there's a possibility that I took the pill. Nowhere in there does it say I took it. Then why would you put it down here that, that there was even a possibility? These are notes given to an attorney who has told me to bear my soul as to any possibility so we could always be prepared. But it wasn't just the possibility of Jeff having taken one pill on the night of the murders. Joe's theory in Fatal Vision was that Jeff had taken a lot of Escatrol. Mike Wallace continued to read from Jeff's own notes. I had lost 12 to 15 pounds in the prior three to four weeks hmm. in the process using three to five capsules of Escatrol Spansu. I don't think that I did. It's in your notes. I had lost 12 to 15 pounds in the prior three to four weeks in the process using three to five capsules of Escatrol Spansules. That's speed. I was also... Three to five capsules for the three weeks. And that's a possibility. You were in good shape. I mean, we know the kind of how you take care of yourself. One right. has to say, look, why would he be taking off 12 to 15 pounds in a period of three to four weeks again in your own handwriting? If I did take off those 12 to 15 pounds over three to four weeks using three to four tablets of Escatrol, that's not abnormal. That's a normal thing. Yeah. That's when I got real, real defensive. You did, you're not taking three to five? Never. Daily? Three to five over that period of time is obvious. I probably didn't even have them. Why, the night of the event? Right, Since I fell asleep, because I fell asleep later that evening. Okay. That would be contraindicated to use them at night because of the... Awakeness. No, you could take them a couple times a day, yeah. which I never did, but you, you could. Now, I asked him, I asked uh, Joe. really ludicrous. I, I asked him uh, why he didn't ask you about the, the amount of Escatrol. Why didn't he ask me? Well, sure. I, I'll tell you what he said. He said, I did not ask him about Escatrol directly because at, the, at that point I was so convinced beyond a shadow of doubt that he wouldn't tell me the truth. If I come to him and say, Jeff, I believe you killed your family because you were taking uh, too much, too many amphetamines. First of all, he's denying that he killed his family, so he's not going to say, "Oh, well, you figured it out, Joe. Okay, you know, you win, you win the prize, right? You solved the puzzle." At the time, he's still operating on the assumption that this book that I'm going to write will forever clear his name, and I knew at that point for sure that the book was not going to forever clear his name. But I have to maintain a working relationship with this guy, so there's no point in sitting down and telling him what I think. Yeah. I knew it would forever, you know, uh, end his willingness to cooperate with me, and I needed that cooperation. But to know what, what I, I knew, knew, I knew enough on the day he was convicted so that I would have voted for conviction, as did anybody who spent every day in that courtroom. But I learned so much more after that, all of it damaging, not just in regard to that night, but to his very essence as a person that his whole life has been a tissue of lies. That's basically what he said at the interview. So given all of this, uh, do you feel that Joe has been dishonest with you or how in a way he's dealt with you or what's your feeling towards him now? Well, there's no question he's been dishonest. He just said so himself. He just rationalizes and says it's okay because he's writing a book. Are you obsessed by this thing? Do you have nightmares? No, I don't have nightmares. Um, well, I, the only, the oddest thing that happened, I woke up in the middle of the night, one night. It was in the wintertime, and uh, I had a, a runny nose. So I was kind of wiping my nose, and my, 
my sleeve, you know, my back of my hand. I got out of bed. I walked down to the bathroom and turned on the bathroom light and I go over to the sink and then I look down and I see that it wasn't a runny nose but that my nose was bleeding. It was a bloody nose and I'm standing at the hall bathroom sink with blood all over my hands. I have never had a bloody nose before or since. You know, I don't wake up in the night with nosebleeds. And that was at 3.40 a.m. Oh. on February 17th, 1980. Exactly oh. 10 years from the moment that Jeffrey McDonald stood there. Yeah. You know, but you're not making this up. No, I'm not making This isn't a funny story. I'll tell you, I didn't go back to sleep that night. Yeah. How, what, what's the ultimate effect this is going to have on your life, this book? Ultimately, are you going to be able to put this thing behind you at some point and say, well, hey, let's go on to the next one? I, I have to. I have to go on. You know, I, I, I think I can. I, mean, I think I've done it. Once it's over, it's over. But this wasn't over. Far from it. It was just getting started. The most controversial true crime story of the decade, based on today's bestseller, Fatal Vision. They called him the Golden Boy. Jeff McDonald seemed destined to have it all. That's next week. Morally Indefensible is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Sony Music Entertainment. This episode of Morally Indefensible was produced by Jesse Rudoy, with help from Ryan Swiker, Zach Hirsch, Julia Botero, Kevin Shepard, and Danielle Elliott. Story editing is by me, Mark Smerling, and Danielle Elliott. Alessandro Santoro is our associate producer. Our archive producer is Brandon Reese. Scott Curtis is our production manager. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines. Kenny Kusiak did the music and mix. Sound design by Kenny Kusiak and Jesse Rudoy. Additional music by John Kusiak and Marmoset. Our title track is Promises by the Monophonics. Voice reenactments by Logan Stearns and Jesse Rudoy. Legal review by Linda Steinman and Jack Browning of Davis Wright Tremaine. Special thanks to Sean Twig, May Ryan, Luke Malone, Brian Murphy, Joe Langford, Peter Schmuel, Diana DeCilio, Bob Stevenson, Christina Misavich, Bob Keeler, and Errol Morris. If you'd like to continue the conversation online, find us on Instagram and Facebook at Morally Indefensible and Twitter at Morally Indef, M-O-R-A-L-L-Y-I-N-D-E-F. If you've enjoyed Morally Indefensible, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps other people find the show. And thanks for listening.